Welcome everybody to uh, Happy Hour with Stretch and Stir Fry today, where uh, we've just had the great pleasure of chatting to Freddie Carr, one of the UK's preeminent sailors and America's Cup yachtsman for many years now. Um, and certainly, most importantly, an all around great bloke. Um, every team he sails with has fun. Stir Fry, tell us a bit more about Freddie. Uh, Freddie, he's one of those guys, you've just got to have him on your team. Every team needs someone like him. I've been lucky enough to do a fair amount of yachting with him and uh, we've enjoyed a fair amount of success. His cup credentials are exemplary. He sailed uh, with us in 2003 on GBR, 2007 Victory Challenge, uh, 13 he did with Luna Rossa and uh, through the latter years, 15 he became fully integral to uh, Ben's programme with Land Rover BAR and now he finds himself in a relatively forefront role with uh, Ineos Team UK. Yeah, it was great to track with him, Stretch. Interesting and hugely motivational the way that his pathway in yachting could have been mapped out because of uh, his father's influence, but he toughed it out. He accepted that maybe he wasn't going to be a great single-handed sailor or helmsman. He knuckled down, he did the hard yards, uh, and he's made his way in the sport through great spirit and hard work. Yeah, I think everyone who sailed with him would agree completely with what you've just said. The joy of chatting with Freddie and Stirfry is that you cover absolutely every topic under the sun. I think we had two and a half hours of great fun chatting about rugby, sport in general, of course, the America's Cup and all the ins and outs of Ineos Team UK. But bear with us now as you join mid-rugby flow. You'll find Freddie is that Stirfry just goes off, you know, unchecked like a sort of raging bull. Yeah, like like the sort of um, Simone like Boris Johnson, like, like the Zinz, like the Zinzan Brook that he always wanted to be, but never quite managed to. No, no, not yeah. Zinzan Brook. Come on, we're English. Okay, who would you be then? Do you say you played like Fry? Um, Brian, Brian Moore. Brian Moore. Nice. <laughs> yeah. uh, just you. I mean, I, I just used to cheat all the time. So, well, I know because I spent. About an hour a week pinned underneath you on the sail off floor as you were trying to teach me the dark arts of a breakdown. Well, Blimey, uh, that's it, enough to give any nipper a breakdown. Yeah. The game's changed a lot though. Well, it hadn't in the sail off in 2001. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Was that when you um, broke poor old Andy Green's arm with a late, with a late hit? <laughs> yeah. That's unfair, Stretch. We were doing a non contact drill and he sought contact and just wasn't prepared for contact. No, I saw it in my own eyes. You, uh, you, you lined him up a kipper and you sent him about 40 foot into the air. I've never that's seen anything like that. That's it. unfair. The thing that did make me laugh was when I got in the next morning and started changing for gym, in my locker there was an envelope with, uh, from Andy Beadsworth and $25 inside it. <laughs> that would have been the same rugby session that, that Mark Sheffield, our mid-bowman, it had a bit of a tough week because it, it poked his head up. It poked his head up from the sewer, and George Skoulos went to kick the hatch shut just as he poked his head up to check in the splits coming into the bottom. And the hatch went and smacked him in the middle of the forehead, and, and Chef had a bit of a sense of humour failure. He was a little temperamental, but I think it, anyone who does the sewer, you have to be. I mean, you, you kept well, him I'll a bit muscle. I'll get, I'll get on to my story about my first day in the sewer later on, actually, <laughs> thanks to you. And anyway, that very same rugby special uh, session that you sought out Andy Green and broke his arm for your mate Beatsworth, um, I also... Do you, know when a, do you know when a rugby ball or a football drops out the sky and you can't do anything but volley it as hard as you can because it's just there to be volleyed it? And this rugby ball dropped out the sky and I thought, I'm absolutely going to melt that. And I'm, I'm connected with this rugby ball better than I've ever kicked anything in my life and as soon as it left my boot I saw chef in front of me and I thought oh my god and this thing spiraled and it cracked him in the nose about <laughs> it would have been about 48 hours after it had a four hatch in the head and he absolutely <laughs> lost his shit ran over towards me grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and it, if it wasn't for big meso Big Meso splitting us up. Who knows what would have happened? I think Chef would have battered me to death, actually. He was pretty fired up that week. Oh. I don't know why we stopped playing rugby stir-fry. Can you? There were, there were a couple of things, weren't there? Yeah. 
you had some pretty big boys on that team as well. It'd be a bit unfair on the little ones. What? Well, well, touch. We played touch in the YMCA gym right till the end, and and it was the best uh, release of the week. I think. I mean, even Mesa used to come and run around like a demented dingbat. He had a nice step on him, Mesa, for a big fella, didn't he? A good turn of gas as well. When he got on the yeah. gas, he was all right. Yeah, deceptively fast, actually. Deceptively yeah. fast. Yeah. yeah. What do you have to do for... Uh, I know you grind all day and cycle all day. What do you do for a release? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Stretch, stretch. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. What do we do? Mm. Well, we don't go to the pub anymore like we used to because... You're kind of trying to be fit and athletic, so we don't do that enough. What do we do for a lease? Go on Facebook and Instagram like the kids, don't we? You know, do an so there's no there's no touch or by the side or no, there's not, mate. To be honest, I mean, it sounds super boring, but you, you'd feel like such a you'd feel like such an idiot if you spent sort of fifteen hours a week for forty weeks of the year trying to get fit for an event and then go and roll your ankle playing touch. And we're kind of and not only if you did that right before the event, you'd feel like a prat, but if you actually took, right now, if you lost a month or two months of training and conditioning, you'd stand a good chance of, of not really making the race boat, you know? They're, they're the kind of fine margins that we're working within, so, yeah. Not that, really. How many are playing for the race boat? How many? So we are, we're going to um, 11 race at a time, and we have a sailing squad of 16 lads. So we see a lot of rotation, like the last cycle. They're, they're, they're really hard boats to sail again, but hard, hard in a different way, to be honest. Um, but if for sure two race days, you're going to be rotating through the grinders like we saw in, in 2017. Um, and you'll be, you'll be kind of keeping the trimmers, pilots, obviously helmsmen for continuity. But yeah, it's about making the systems for the grinders and training up the grinders enough that we can get to the cup with two grinders that are able to do a job to a world-class level and then a third grinder in that spot uh, with the ability to back up if we, in case we get an injury or, or sickness going into the, into the race month. And so you sailed the, the cats with Luna Rossa and obviously yeah. they were conceptual and then inceptual and proved very, very difficult. Yeah. Are these more difficult? Yeah, yeah, they are. They're more, way more technical. I mean, just for example, to look at where we were with the the foils um, back in 2013 and the systems around the foils, how you have active rate control. We didn't really have active rate control um, on the big cats. And then moving, we kind of progressed that obviously in, into 2017 where we had active rate control, but it was powered by the human body. So you were limited with... Sometimes you're limited with how much rate control you had because you're always chasing power. And now we're in this world where fundamentally the rake and the, the fly height of the boat is controlled by a battery and everything above the waterline is controlled by the grinders. So, yeah, it's, I mean, not only the complexity around the foil itself has changed beyond recognition, but the complexity in the system and what we're trying to do with the foils has changed beyond recognition. You, you talk to the foil designers that have got a foot in 17 and a foot now, and they just said the, the mass problem is, is 10 times harder than it was in 17. There's so much more around trying to get to the answer than it was, was back then. And, and so, so pretty, is that problem linked to not developing as much wick because you're on soft sails or the scale of the boats? or what, what, How would you explain it? Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally the, the rule is a bit more open. There's more stuff for the designers to play with. Um, now, although we've only got uh, three foils as opposed to four with the cats, the foils that are on the um, 75, there's a lot more that you can do with, do with that foil, basically, with how you're going to A, design in the fundamental shape of the foil, but also how you're going to manipulate that foil under the water to get it, to get it ripping. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many avenues that you can explore and like in all things in the, in the cup, and it doesn't matter if it's the cup that we did together back in the day or now, 
is knowing what is actually going to be the 10 percenters that you've got to invest all your R&D into, or you can get it wrong and go down a rabbit hole and chase a one percenter and don't even see the 10 percenter. So Freddie, um, how, much, how much time do you sailors spend chatting to the designers? Do you know, Stretch, probably more than I've ever done in any cup cycle right now. And particularly with the world we're living in, in the coronavirus world where all four teams are struggling to sail in this cycle more than I've ever known, you add on top of that the complexity of the boats and the reliability of the boats. And I'm not talking about um, the boats breaking. I'm talking about you can fundamentally only do, if you do three days sailing, that boat has to stop. And not like the good old days where you'd, you'd strip all the winches down and, and take the string drop system apart, like six or seven computer geeks get on board and, and plug in and you're going through the logic and going through the glitches in the system and you, and you have to stop. So you, I'd say more than ever, we're struggling for sailing days, which is why we've seen the prevalence of the simulators coming through. And the conversation between the designers and the sailors and you add into that actually the head of department of the shore crew, I think is probably more important than I've ever seen because if those three, if that triangle isn't working together in that unit, so in my case, the, the drivetrain system and, and the hydraulic side of things, then you're not front footing it when you're on the water. So you, you, we, you've got to be so ahead of the game and have such a good understanding of your specific area that, just the learning is happening constantly the, the whole time. Yeah, it's, it's hard. The, on your drivetrain, you, you've had a lot to do with that. And I remember talking to you maybe a year, 15 months ago, and you were pushing the button on some pretty revolutionary stuff. Did all that come to pass? Yeah, I mean, we, we had a real good run out at it. And I think what we, what we, what we did really well and what I hope we've done well, but proof will be in the pudding, is we realised that we had... Team New Zealand did a very good job of, after winning, after winning the Cup, they announced their concept early. And to be fair to them, they got a rule out pretty early. Compared to the, the Cup cycle before, where it took Oracle a while, although everyone knew the general concept that, that might, be, um, might be happening, um, we obviously had the whole thing that that cup in Bermuda was going to be in 62s and then it ended up in 50s because the test boats were so good. Um, New Zealand, to their credit, uh, did a good job of announcing the concept and did a good job of uh, getting the rule out. Obviously, they have the front foot from being the defender that they know the rule earlier and that's their, that's their privilege. You kind of look at that problem and it's like, right, we've got to really push the boat out in terms of concept because you're allowed to build two boats in this cup cycle. So we've got, to, we've got to have a good go at making a good leap with your first boat and then refine it with the second boat. What we realised you couldn't do is have a rough stab in the dark with boat one and hope you land in the right spot and then make a huge jump with boat two. There basically wasn't enough time in the timeline to, to do that R&D in between boat one and boat two. So you needed to have made the jump going straight off the bat. And will the systems on boat two be pretty much what are on boat one? Do you think there'll be a, a, another quantum leap on systems? Um, yeah, I mean, for sure, we'll, we'll step forward, Sir Fry, and you know, you know the cup. I mean, if you're not developing throughout the cup, uh, you're, you're dead in the water, aren't you? I mean, you, you only really have to look back at the last two cycles, you've obviously got the, the cup that was in 13 with the, with the comeback. And I think Oracle probably went 20% faster upwind in the last race versus the first race. I think that's the greatest example of it. And you look at the, you look at the Kiwis um, in uh, 2017 and they, I mean, you look at their data and they were just getting faster and faster and faster. And the thing that I respect from the Kiwis in that cup is they, they knew they had a couple of games to make going into the America's Cup match itself, and then they did it, and you could see the step forwards from it. I thought that was, that was really impressive. They weren't stabbing in the dark. So, so going back to 13, obviously Oracle had a bit of a wobble when they tipped boat one in. Mm. Um, and there's been breakages and damage 
you know, your team's experienced a little bit in Cagliari. Um, Does that mean that you have a radical departure from boat one or or is it just an evolution or how does it feel? Yeah, no, it's very much an evolution at the moment. I mean, uh, what I would say more than anything is our strategy is up in the air, like all sports. It's it's unbelievable. Um, we are planning and we are, you've got to plan, well, the, we are planning, obviously the Cup's going to be starting early next year and there's, there's no doubt about that. Now, if the coronavirus quarantine stuff eases up in the next month, then our, we, we're kind of right where our strategy was, where we would have planned to be. But you just don't know. I think the other thing we have to be acutely aware of, and actually Ben Ben is really good at, is we can't be seen yachting around the Solon with chase boats following us here, there and everywhere, where the whole of Portsmouth is in lockdown and getting told off for walking on the seafront. So although, although to us it's going back to work and we'd work within social distances where we could, I just, and Ben, I know, doesn't, think it's right that the country is struggling like it is and and we're out yachting and I think that's the right call I think we've got to be very sensitive to the the state of the nation and it's it's bigger than it's bigger than the cup and bigger than sport so does that mean that there should be uh, some kind of agreement between the teams on how many days days you can sail between now and the cup or is a delay likely or I mean I know we're crystal ball gazing but yeah any comments? I mean, as, as always, I mean, the cup for me, I, I love it because I love my sailing. I love it a little bit because of the political side of it as well. I, it's very house of cards, isn't it? It's very house of cards, the whole cup world. And it always has been, you know. And that for me is why I find it so fascinating. There, there is a dialogue between the teams always. Um, but like I said, as, as far as we're concerned at Ineos, we're, we're definitely just... We've got our start date of our of our racing early next year, and we're shooting towards that. And until we hear otherwise, we're we're, we're rescheduling around the corona, but we, we are we are we're aiming to hit our big targets to to try and do that. Now, at the moment, we're we're kind of not delayed with any with any boat building stuff, which is great. Uh, shore teams kind of cracking on as they can within. Um, social distancing guidelines as they are at Jason's yard in Hythe. Jason's doing a really good job of, of managing the build of the second boat. So as of today, which ironically we're talking on the first day that there should have been racing in the America's Cup World Series in Cagliari, um, we're, we're, in, we're, in, we're in good shape, but it's out of our hands. Um, yeah, and in these, these mental times, it, it's, uh, it, it kind of, you have to put it in perspective in your head now. Listening to Luke talk last week where he talked about this big bonus of time and what they're going to do with their time, I feel like we're the opposite. We are looking at, the, he's looking at the what-ifs because I've got more time to get ready for the Olympics. Whereas we're looking at the what-ifs, what if, what happens, how do we prioritise, how do we spend our time in the water if we lose days and days and days and we're, we're arriving in New Zealand and we have to go into quarantine for two weeks and how does getting to New Zealand look like? How do we get our stuff into New Zealand? All of that stuff is so in the air, you know. I mean, there must be thoughts of pretty much packing up as soon as you can and getting down to New Zealand if they're going to be one of the, the, the lowest corona, race, a corona rate um, or, or the lowest problems in the world. Yeah. It's not a bad place to yeah, be. Yeah, I mean, they've done... I mean, I, I, I've got nothing but... Actually, I've got nothing but respect from the way that nation's dealt with it. They... They went and shut the borders down hard early and they seem to have suffered very little, you know. It's, it's a very Kiwi staunch way and, and it's worked well now because of that. And I'm, I'm talking in my humble opinion, do they keep the borders shut for longer to make sure they completely stamp it out? Or because they've done such a good job early on, does that mean their borders will be open earlier? I mean, that I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I, I, I'm acutely aware that they don't have very many cases on their island nation. So the only risk of people, coronavirus, getting into that country is people coming to that country with it. So I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. Um, but, yeah, we are, we are planning around what could be 150 days sailing in the cut boats 
down to what could be 30 days sailing in the cup boats before the first race. You just don't, you, we just don't know. And that's, that's pretty hard. So Freddie, how much sailing did you get in the last boat? In RB1, um, yeah. we, we launched a little later in the Solent than we'd have liked. Um, but as soon as, we, as soon as we got to Cagliari, we, we, were, we were doing what I'd call proper old school cut days, you know. We were stringing three or four, um, three or four days together um, a week. We'd be sailing every saleable day. We would be off the dock at the crack of sparrows and... If you're on the water for eight hours, we'd be getting five and a half, six hours testing. Um, and so, so, yeah. um, so going back to the old America's Cup chicanery and and uh, and conduct deeds, yeah. is there a lot of um, cheeky action and spying going along? I mean, it's to be honest, stretch. It's not even cheeky anymore. It's <laughs> it's part and parcel of the cup, um, and it's slowly been getting that way more and more and. Every time we, every time every team goes sailing, a member of the other team is watching, and and because of this lack of time on the water across all four teams, really, I'm sure design teams are having their views and their designs on uh, their second generation of boats slightly steered, maybe more than ever, um, by what they're getting from their recon departments. It really. It really has been a. It really has stepped up in terms of recon more than I've ever seen before. Um, because we're trying to learn from their sailing days as much as we're trying to learn from our sailing days. You know, it's it's not that it's not like the good old days where uh, Adam May, uh, one of one of the cleverest blokes I know, used to be our spy at Victory Challenge in 2007, and we'd go around all the team shops and buy him all the different kit, and he'd stand at the end of the thing in a lingy cap waving at Team New Zealand, taking pictures. But you don't even bother with that anymore. People know who the spies are and, and you kind of doff your cap to them in the morning and, and, and all of that. Unless it's Soapy. If Soapy's out in the Solent spying for the uh, American, we give him a rude finger gesture just to keep him honest. But. <laughs> do, you think, do you think we need to get Stir Fry a little, a little snorkel and mask and get him into the waters of New Zealand? He'd be, be so unassuming and undercover. Oh yeah, it's really understated stuff. Oh yeah, that'd be it'd be a brilliant guy to go undercover. Thanks, Fred. <laughs> well, so, I do uh, remember. I mean, the, the 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 I mean, some of the cup stories of spying are legendary. Derek Clark donning scuba gear and diving under the skirts of the twelve meters, and right. James Line working out that he could go to the top of the Sky Tower and see more from up there with a telephoto lens than he could from on a chase boat. That's right. And, well, he also and, got more sandwiches up there as well, but. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's involved in the magic still, actually. It's nice to see Lionel about. He's some boy. I think he, he claims he's from America now, not, not Yorkshire. Well, it does make me laugh. When he comes and talks to me or Ado or Boise or someone on the Super Series circuit, he goes all Whitby and all right, lads, how you going? You know, that's bloody great. And then you yeah. hear him speaking to the lads and he's, ah, yeah, well, I think we should just run a little more of Cunningham. <laughs> he's um, he's, he's all things to all people. He's a Yorkshire lad at heart, I'm sure. Definitely. Yeah. Sorry, lads, that's my ice clinking. I've just topped up with a bit of... Uh, what's it oh, that's all right. I just quite oh, like your, your Yorkshire accent, actually. Um, speaking of accents, Freddie, how are all the Aussies fitting into, the, into our British team? Yeah, do you know, they're, they're doing really well. We've got, we've, got a nice, we've got a nice group of lads, actually, a really nice group of lads. We've obviously got uh, sort of Gubsy, Gubsy up at the top, as always, and he's on cracking form at the moment. You know, I think it's been... It's been quite testing for him to, to manage what is now a, a huge group of people through this and everybody looks to, to Ben to, to, to lead the team, you know, and that's, that's a long way away from the, the Ben you would have met sort of in the early 90s, Stir Fry, and he does a, very, he does a really good job of it. Um, and the Aussies, I mean, they're, they're good boys. I mean, we've still, we still got a core of, core of British boys and actually... With the nationality rule this time round, I think we're all British passport holders apart from Ian Jensen. So uh, Gooby, as he's known, um, who's a total legend. Uh, in fact, got a great story about Stir Fry. Stir Fry met one of our uh, new grinders, a lad called Graham Spence. We, we signed him up from Oracle, and uh, Graham is kind of his family originates from up north, 
and he's from Hull, Leeds, kind of way up there. I don't know anywhere north of the M4. I presume Hull and Leeds are quite close. I don't really know. Anyway, he was trying to claim how British he was to Stir Fry at a Super Series event a couple of years ago. And uh, Stir Fry was, you were fairly unimpressed with his Britishness, weren't you? So, yeah. So, well, he's so Yeah, so, so there on the spot. Stirfry uh, grabbed hold of his credit card and uh, signed him up to the Barmy Army. And I think you signed him up for a decade membership. That's, that's not quite true. I forced <laughs> him to join the Barmy Army, which he did, and then he sent me his membership um, acceptance, which was quite impressive. So, no, but since then, he's really into the Barmy I mean, how can he not be into the Barmy Army? And, yeah, so Graham, Graham rattles away. He knows all the songs, you know. So we're, get, we're breaking them down slowly. Whenever I see Stir Fry without a suntan, I'm basically a little bit nervous because he does more days sailing than anyone else I know. Now, the last time I saw him without a suntan would have been after the global economic crisis in the late 90s. And he hasn't got a suntan now. So, you know, you know the world is slightly off kilter <laughs> when Simon Fry yeah. isn't glowing. Yeah, I mean, talking of being British, I just always presumed he was a Maori for years. Samoan, I think. Aren't you, Fry? Samoan, yeah. Samoan. Yeah. Well, you know, you know where that comes back to, Fred? No. When I was sailing the ultras with dear old Glyn, we had a slight incident in Penarth involving Miles Armin and Dan Primrose, where, I don't, I'm not sure if the 20-year rule's up, but sod it, we broke into the commentary booth and um, were broadcasting to the whole nation on this little commentary booth on Penarth seafront. And... <laughs> Cops turned up anyway. There was a big furore, and there was a letter to the yacht club and a letter to the organisers, of which um, Lodwin Eddie Wardenham was in charge. And uh, it listed the three protagonists as someone in spectacles, a large Samoan, and his small Indian accomplice. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh, brilliant! I tell you what, mate. How far ahead of the time was the ultra circuit? Thinking about it now, yeah. I mean, stadium racing. Short, sharp racing next to the shore. It was that was fifteen, maybe twenty years ahead of its time. That well, we start. We started in nineteen ninety, and we followed on from the ultimate yacht race, which was eighty nine in um, oh Corpus Christi. There you go. It, so, that was so good to watch that racing. So good to watch. It was good fun. I mean, and and the other thing, you sort of. You know, with all the boats being one design, you just went out, bashed around, um, relatively low budget. It, as you say, it was ahead of its time. It's a shame there's not something a little more inclusive for bigger teams at that kind of budget level. Yeah, I always thought it looked a bit scary being the being the guy who's at the very end of the dagger board when you're trying to right the boat after a capsize and you're holding on to the 12th person in line. And you're thinking, <laughs> where's that guy going when the boat well, that, comes? That's up? what you call pecking order stretch. Ah, <laughs> uh, comes back to your old thing about nippers, doesn't it? Yeah, so, yep. he's the king. He's the king of nippers, Stirfry. So, um, yeah. So, so Freddie, I mean, you might be an America's Cup rock star now, but you were once the wee nipper back in the day. I mean, how did you get into the America's Cup? Oh, anyway, good question. Um, so, I guess so. If I was to wind it right back, I would have. I started sailing down at Hailing Island Sailing Club and I was very much just a, a messing about in boats kind of guy. Now, as, as you may or may not know, my old man um, was heavily involved with the Olympic team, was Olympic sailing coach for years and years and years, went on to run the RYA and all that blah. Um, so he wanted me to get into sailing, but he didn't really push me because he was because he was sort of top of the tree within British sailing. He didn't want to be... be uh, a kind of pushy dad but one summer what he did do when I was about 11 and this is actually the first time I met the uh, the famous stir fry is I went on tour with him for a summer and we went and did Hiers. I was about 10 years old I went and I followed him around we went and did Hiers. we went and did Spa now this would have been in 91 so you'd have been saving a stir fry uh, a soling stir fry yeah with um Glenn God rest his soul and Shedman Chris Gowers there you go. And I, I remember that summer, I remember blasting around in my dad's rig for a whole summer, watching uh, Paul Brotherton and, and Andy Hemmings and, and Shirley and all of these guys, all of these Olympic sailors. And, uh, and that was me. That was me thinking, oh, my goodness, look at this. What a, what a way to live your life. So, 
yeah, I kind of, I kind of. Was it what you saw on the water or what you saw ashore that convinced you? (laughs) That's a good question. That's a good question. Well, I think in the honest answer is both, you know, I think, uh, and I, I, you look back to not necessarily those days, but certainly the days after when I was in my mid teens learning to sail and learning to race, we had a right old laugh, a right old laugh. Because you did, you did all the student match racing, didn't you? And that's right. That's right. So I came up. I came up. I did that traditional route. I came up uh, sailing lasers, and uh, I did all right. Like I'd be top twenty at a windy nationals. Couldn't go downwind. So that like laser sailing changed for me when Ainsley started working his ass off downwind, and <laughs> I used to like going downwind because that's when you get your sandwiches out and chat with your mates. So I was always a little bit, I was that generation behind Ainsley and, and Goodison and Bart and Purse. And then, and then uh, Bart, God rest his soul, what a legend. I used to coach myself, Mark Richmond, Ben Waters, Lee McMillan down at Hailing Island when I was about 16 years old. And I'd come fourth in every tuning run out of four. But I had a good old time with Bart. And I mean, I was, we'd have a shandy at the bar and, He'd give me a few life lessons as well. He was a fantastic inspiration for me. And, and, he, and, he, said, and he said something that I've heard all too often. And he, he probably realised that I wasn't a, a fantastic single-handed sailor. And he was like, hey, young car, you should go out and you should, uh, you should try sailing keelboats. And, and you should go out and try doing different sailing. And that's what I did. And I ended up sailing with, with James Ward and, and Mark Campbell-James in, in match racing and match racing is what set me up I think match racing I, I hate seeing all the match racing circuit where it's now because mm. you get chucked in a boat with no idea on how to make it go fast and you have to first of all make the boat go fast as a crew of three or four and figure out your boat handling and you've got an hour to do it before your first race I mean my goodness that makes you sharp that makes you so sharp and that's where that's where I cut my teeth basically in youth match racing that's my gin tonight is it any good? I that looks well, great. Good. It's really nice. Really yeah. nice. Chichester Harbour gin. Plug that. Yeah. Yeah, it's very nice gin. That's, it's like, I'd equate it to like the boycott of gins, you know? Just a nice solid bat. Nothing flash. What, a bit right. boring? Yes. Uh, yeah, well, frankly, there's so many fancy gins nowadays that I think you can get a bit lost, can't you? Oh, yeah. Ooh. Lovely cork coming out there. I was just thinking, stretch back to the top of the show or top of the recording. I I think I said uh, he might not, Luke might not be a very good sailor, but he knows a lot about whiskey. (laughs) Probably shouldn't put that in. No, that's in. That's in. I really, I must, I must say, like, really like to see him do well at the games. Yeah, you know, I feel, I just feel for all those guys right now because. you know, it's, it's Tokyo going to happen still kind of thing. They, yeah. you know, it's the opposite to New Zealand. They've got real issues over there. It was really interesting, actually, from about two months ago. Giles is obviously a key figure in the team. Yeah. And he'd just gone, he'd just clicked into games mode. He'd just started dropping out of the banter a bit. He'd started getting his blinkers on. His, his numbers on his Watt bikes were going through the roof. And he was getting into his, his focus uh, phase. You know, you could see him on his games wind up. And, and we all know how to be around him when he's getting there because he's, he's, he's an impressive guy psychologically. Uh, just backs yeah. himself to the hill. And then overnight, he was on the red wine. I was like, yes, Charles. <laughs> yeah. Straight on the booze. Yeah. So, so in terms of uh, not winning the Gold Cup or not meddling at the Gold Cup, he wasn't fully prepared for that one, Fred. Yeah. Do you know, he was very, he was very um, philosophical about it, actually. Like, he's obviously used to podiuming, if not winning, everywhere. Mm. And I think what the RYA do, and, and, and listening to, to, to Ian Walker and, and Luke last week, is you can, you can just, I think, within sailing, it really grounds you to have a solid head on your shoulders. And uh, I think a product, a lot of good things, there's a lot of, you kind of get a lot of, stuff that comes out the RA system that doesn't necessarily set you up for pro sailing perfectly, but there's a I man, they get some kids with some the solid head on their shoulders. That's for sure. I think, I think that is the most notable thing of all actually is those guys know what they're shooting for for the Olympics, yeah. don't they? They're, they're well prepared. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I mean, and that sort of going back to where we were, I mean, that's, I, 
that was the biggest thing in my life. The biggest thing in my, I still don't really like calling it a career because I still feel like I'm getting paid to, to do my hobby as I, as I know a lot of the guys in our profession do. We're extremely lucky. But the biggest thing in my life was realising I was nowhere near good enough to go to the Olympic Games um, and going, right, if I want to do this, I need to go and I need to go and learn to sail, and that's where that's where. And I jumped on a small match racing boat, sailing the first class eights, um, match racing at the end of the the nineties, and we were useless. Uh, we weren't strong enough. We didn't know match racing well enough. Our boat handling wasn't good enough. We didn't have enough of an idea around how to set up sails. In fact, we had a we had a we had stir fry and James Stagg come down Weymouth and, and coach us all in the first class eights. I remember. Um, and they, I can remember you guys just being like, oh my God, what are these knickers up to, you know? Um, but match racing set you up to go and be a pro sailor more than any other kind of sailing. And like I said, I, I find it really sad now to kind of see what that match racing circuit in the 90s into 2000s with the direct feed into the America's Cup yeah. was just brilliant. And that's, that's, where, that's where I came from. And I went... I went down to Youth Worlds with James Ward and Mark Campbell James in, in 2000. And that was obviously when, and that was in Auckland, when Team New Zealand defended uh, 5-0, beating Luna Rossa. And Bill Edgerton was our match racing coach down there. And he was also one of the key umpires um, at the America's Cup. So the three of us got to go in the umpire rib in the deciding match between Luna Rossa and America won in the Louis Vuitton final, the famous match, the hold your proper course. Yeah. He, what was the trimmer's name, Stir Fry? Uh, Carter? Carter Perrin. Yeah, ease the cell, Carter, ease the cell. And we were, we were sat, but we were sat 30 metres behind that whole downwind. Amazing. And my jaw was on the floor. Like the America's Cup, I knew the, about the America's Cup. And then to see that match with the amount of spectators out there, to see Luna Rossa go back into the viaduct after having won the Louis Vuitton Challenger to go on to race New Zealand. And there were tens of thousands of people there. And they weren't even supporting their home nation. And I thought, what is, what is this? What is this? And, and, then, and then sort of two months later, we won the, the Youth Match Racing Worlds. And six months after that, we won the student, student Match Racing Worlds. And then I sent a very, very... Uh, grovelly email to to Ian Walker to to come and be the nip, the nipper at GBR and that's that's where I met Stir Fry. That's how you got your nickname. <laughs> My lunchbox. <laughs> no, that, yeah, but you're not like Linford Christie. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, <laughs> no, I mean the lunchbox I put my sandwiches in. Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. No stretch. I hadn't had a packed lunch for a while because you don't when you're in your late teens. You don't really have a packed lunch, do you? So first day of, of GBR Challenge and uh, the only packed lunch I had, the only lunchbox I had was my old school lunchbox from when I was about 11. And I was like, well, do you know, I haven't got anything else. So I just put my sandwiches and probably a packet of Pringles back then, to be honest, in my lunchbox. And little did I know my mum got, God, my goodness, in the lid of my lunchbox when I was a kid, wrote, David Carr is a star. You know, just so when you're, open, you're, just so when you're having your, your, your bloody cheese sandwich at lunchtime, you go, ah, oh, I love my mum. And anyway, luckily, I was sat next to Stir Fry on my very first day at work. And uh, yeah, he saw David Carr is a star. And then he started circulating Freddie and Freddie's Freddie star. star. And here I am 20 years later and I get, introduced to people as Frederick, like it's my proper name. But I like the way that I've met people who say, oh, did you know Freddie, Freddie, uh, David Carr, he's, he's one of the cup sailors. Um, apparently he got his nickname because he turns his arm over like Flintoff. And I'm like, you are freaking yeah. joking. Do you know where that came from, mate? That's 20 years of me not telling the lunchbox story. And now it's out there. Oh, no. I have very. I tell you. I tell you though, lads, and I. I have. I have such fond memories of of that time, um, sort of, two thousand and one into the two thousand and three cup, and I was. I was only nineteen, and uh, like I said, I sent an email to Ian Walker, 
say, look, I've done this in the match racing. I'll come and help in any which way possible. And he was like, yeah, mate, come, you're going to come and help. You're not a sailor. You're going to come and be a nipper. And I was like, yeah, all right. Yeah, cool. That sounds, that sounds great. I'll come and be a nipper now. My first, we just bought, um, we just bought Peter Harrison had just bought the two Nippon boats. Stirfry, what were the, what were the boats called? Well, I'm going to interject with you there, Fred. That was lovely when Peter sat in the uh, meeting room in Cows and said, I've bought an America's Cup starter kit and we've got three boats. That's Azura, Ida 10, and what's the other one called? And someone, I don't know who it was at the back, went, Ashita. And he went, that's it, Ashita. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so... Oh man. And so I rock up there and with, with the America's Cup starter kit, there were probably, I reckon, 15 mainsails over two cup cycles, maybe more, maybe 25 mainsails. Now, if you can wind your memories back, the, the Nippon Challenge branding was like nothing you've ever seen. So I worked in the sail off with Stir Fry. And he'd go, I wouldn't go out of sailing. Obviously, I was a kid. That was a privilege I hadn't earned. And Sturfer, I was right, right, young Carl. Um, uh, while we're out sailing today, can you take the branding off these mainsails? So I'd be there with my hot gun. And I would there for, I'd be there for 10 hours peeling branding off a mainsail, get one of the sail off guys, probably Jerry to help me roll it over, do another, peel it all off. And my fingers are fucking bleeding. And I'd oh, do cool. two mainsails a day. For the best part of 10 days, it must have been. And I kid you not, they were, my fingers were to the bone. Stir fry would come in off from sailing every day. It kind of stand at the end of the main song and goes, ah, looks a bit fucked this one, actually. We might just throw it out. And it was the full, <laughs> it was the full poking me to yeah. see when I, and I wasn't going to break. And I knew every day I was going to be peeling stickers off sails for, for sort of eight hours a day. And they get thrown out. But that was my proving ground, and I was obviously the guy that would go in and I'd go in and uh, bail out the boat of water, bail out the boat from water, and I was working. Paul Stanbridge was the sailing team manager back then, possibly the scariest human being I've ever ever worked with. And Ed Danby was the head of the shore crew, two of the most piratey individuals I mean, that I've ever ever seen. I, and yeah, <laughs> I, I was so I was so scared of Paul. I, I didn't dare speak to him for the first two regattas I sailed with him. Oh man. I mean, but what a, a lovely guy, lovely guy. Yeah. But yeah, he's a top man. I mean, he was in the he was in the nipper school as well. And I would go, I'd go in the boat after my stir fry made my fingers bleed for the whole day peeling off stickers off mainsails he was never going to go and use. I'd go and burn out the boat at the end of the day, and they'd go up and he'd poke his head around the boat and make sure it was dry. And I tell you, it was dry. But I made sure that boat was dry every day. And he'd go and he'd put a bucket of water down the main hatch. <laughs> and he'd be like, oh, young car. There's still a bit of water down the fore hatch here. And, and you couldn't say anything. And you'd go back in and bail the boat out. And Matt, it was, it, I, I feel lucky. I mean, what a group to, to go and work with. And I, I, I swear, Stretch, that, that 18 months, I rubbed shoulders with those guys. I learned more in that 18 months. Yes, about sailing, but just how to build a culture and how to operate within a team. You know, we had some real good guys there. You know, yeah. like the, the Chris Masons, the George Skudos, the Andy Beadsworths. Like, just you made the race boat, Fred. Jubilee. Uh, well, mate, and uh, I tell you, so I watched Prada and New Zealand sail in the America's Cup final in 2000. And then in 2001, we had the America's Cup Jubilee. And slowly I'd been as I was earning my stripes and it was the right thing for me to do. And it was the right thing for, for the, the heads at GBR to do. I slowly started sailing, slowly started grinding. I did a couple of days in mid bow that I'll get to in a minute. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I was learning a lot. In fact, I remember my first day sailing on this boat. I have to tell this one is we're there with Chris Main, who's an absolutely crazy Kiwi, phenomenally talented sailor, and he's got he's got energy like nothing I've ever seen. Right, Fry. Well, it depends what he's been um, eating, <laughs> to to coin a phrase. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so he's there, and he, I looked up to Chris because he was he was muscular, he was good match racer, he was fit, and he was like, right, young car. When I say go on this hoist, you grind like you've never ground before. And I'm like, oh man, this is cool. Here we go. Do my first ever mainsail, uh, my first ever spinnaker hoist on an America's Cup boat. 
pretty pumped up. I'm kind of think I'm the bee's knees. He was doing main grind and I was doing half grind. So he fundamentally had the ability to dictate what my pedestal did. So the pit man who would have been shagger at the time would have put up a call to go hoist. And my God, I gave it some salad into that pedestal. And I was like, pretty strong here. Not really feeling much resistance. <laughs> I put my head down and I'm spinning at a hundred miles an hour. And uh, I hear shag call out made and I'm still spinning. I'm like, Oh God, look at me go. I'm phenomenal. And then I just hear everyone laughing. And the boys had clicked me out and no one was, no one was watching. No one was kind of watching the spinnaker go up or anything. They were seeing how long I'd grind for before I realised I was doing sweet Fanny Adams. And it turned out I was grinding for quite a while, by all accounts. Which, ironically, put me a good step to do the Modern America's Cup because that's what we do now. We just grind non-stop. <laughs> going, going back to the guys in your, in your first cup, I mean, it's such a... Such an extraordinary bunch of people, actually, for you as a young young British nipper to learn from. I mean, you talk of Stanbridge, who's one of the Britain's greatest ever big boat sailors, really. Yeah, and you look at all, all the other guys, um, you know, around, around you. Um, nowadays, the, the sailing in America's Cup is, is highly technical. D the design has become even more technical. Nowadays, as an old, one of the older team members, how much input are you able to give the younger guys like you got? That's a, that's a good question, Stretch. Like, yeah, I like to think that, I think what I learned from, from the guys when I was back in the day in 2003 is there's no such thing as a stupid question. And man, I had a lot of stupid questions back then, you know, and they were so good at schooling me up. And I was asking questions about everything. And you would, you'd go to the, the portside pub sort of on the Friday after work and because of the characters and the integrity of the people that I was working with then, they would just very subtly, you'd go and have a beer with them very subtly, and they'd just be like, hey, friends, just next week, just do this. Like, you're doing well, but like, when you're out, when you, if you can find another five, ten minutes to go into the loft and help do the jibs, and they just, what they'd do is they'd just steer me very subtly through not necessarily the sailing, but the culture and the, the, the energy that you put into the team. And, and fundamentally, that hasn't changed. I, I think it's really important. I think in, in sailing and cup sailing uh, more than any other sport because of the intensity of it, that you have the culture right. And I feel, I feel privileged in this cycle and, and a little bit in the cycle before that I feel like I can kind of help set the tone with some of its senior sailors. And if, if you set the tone and you're having fun, then the boat goes faster. And I think it is a sit. And I've always, and I learned now, Fry and Shag and, and, and those guys, you know, and, and Walker. Like if, you're, if, you're, if you're having fun, the boat, the boat is going faster. Now, I'm not talking about messing about on the race course, but in general, you, you've got to have a good culture within the team. If you don't have a good culture, I mean, you look at the really successful sailing teams in the cup from the last 20 years, the two, that's, the two that stand out for me, and it's not taking anything away from Oracle, is uh, New Zealand and Alingi. And you speak to the old sailors from those cup teams, is New Zealand has got culture that runs deep, and it still does, and I, I really respect that. And, and a lingi from that 03 into 07 and then into 010 when they lost the, lost the deed of gift, they had a good culture around sort of Dorbs and, and Butterworth and Ed Baird and, 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 and the guys. And that's, that's what I'm trying to get. Well, that's what I think, well, I know we have at Ineos and it's, it's hugely important. You're right, Fred. It's latent talent, um, real work ethic, and then savage piss-taking. If you can combine all of those three things into any team sport you're going to be successful that's so true and we, we have a young lad called ollie grieber absolute diamond lad and he's proper he's come out of the what we have or we had an academy and he's come out of that academy and because he's the nipper we ruthlessly absolutely ruthlessly rip the piss out of him and sometimes he's just like oh and i'm like mate ollie it's the day that we stop ripping the piss out of you that you should be worried we rip the piss out of you because you're a good bastard so keep your chin up, mate. You've have you put him in a sail bag yet? <laughs> now, the thing is, Fry, things have changed a lot in the years. So 
stretch a couple of stories for you. So Ollie's, Ollie's a nipper of us and I try and steer him with good advice and every so often try and put a beer in his hand, but he's a, he's a young athlete. So he often passes it back to me and I'll drink it for him. <laughs> um, and uh, when I was a nipper, there's was, there was two moments that stand out for me for not only making my fingers bleed with the sails, but when before the Jubilee in 2001, I, I had a shot at doing mid-bow. Now that was something I was excited about. It was my first day on mid-bow and we're in the changing rooms getting ready to go. And uh, all of a sudden, the chain room goes a bit quiet and Stir Fry and all his cronies kind of surrounded me. And I was, I was pounced on and they pinned me to the floor. They ripped, my sh- they ripped my sailing shoes off and they put them in a bucket of McLoo. Now, I didn't have any other shoes with me for that day. So it was either barefoot or McLoo. So I had to go down and do sewer for the day with McLoob's trainers. Now, they'd also been really nice, and they had McLoob's the whole of the inside of the boat. And I came back from that day sailing, not only totally stressed because I was trying to figure out all the systems downstairs on the boat, but it's like I've done 10 rounds with Tyson. I don't think I spent more than 30 seconds on my feet. It was... did look like a ripe pear. <laughs> oh, man. That was a stressful day. It was a stressful day before I couldn't stand up. But then next year, I couldn't stand up for a day. And then often on a Friday afternoon, we'd be in the sail often. Stir fry would be... No, that's tea- not true. Scudos. Uh, yeah, Scudos. Yeah, Scudos was good at the breakdown, wasn't he? Scudos would, would rough and tumble me into a spinnaker bag. I'd get tied up into a spinnaker bag like while the lads were having beers. And I'd get uh, pull, hoisted up into the roof. And they'd treat me like a human piñata. And just give me little love taps with inflatable batons until I told them that they were all the greatest people I've ever met and then they'd lower me down. Yeah. Oh. I don't do that to our nippers, actually, Fry. Why? There's this thing called HR now with a lovely lady called Joe Despard who, who looks after our, uh, I think HR stands for human relations or something, human resources. Oh, so not heart rate. No, it's not heart rate, no. Yeah, I don't think that would go down that well if I whacked the nippers around the head with inflatable bands. Yeah. But no, that was, that was a great summer. That, I remember the, I just about started making it. I was sailing on the B-boat regularly um, with GBR. And then Stirfry and the lads went off and did uh, the fast net. You did it on Loco, didn't you, mate? Yep. And big, uh, big guy, uh, big guy Reed, probably the hardest human being on planet Earth, wears shorts and T-shirt all year round. That summer of 2001, big guy Reed, like super tough Glaswegian fisherman who was pretty much one of our better grinders at GBR. He didn't, he, did he not grind all the way from Fastnet Rock back to Plymouth in a TP52? Yeah. Damn win. Yeah. And the upshot of that, not great for him, but good for me, was he, 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 he did his shoulder in for a couple of weeks. So I got, I got bumped up to grind on the A-boat. So... 18 months earlier, I was watching Prada and Team New Zealand race in the America's Cup match. And then 18 months later, I was racing against those two teams with the British Cup team. So if I had to put my finger on a moment where it all span on its head, it's probably probably big guy Reed grinding all the way back from <laughs> Fastnet Rock to Plymouth. Good on him. Well, I, I, did, a, I did a Scottish series with him, uh, the feeder race from Kip to Tarbert in... I want to say 97, 98 on a BH36 and we had a, like a pre uh, departure fish and chips somewhere. And anyway, we just jumped in the little minibus off we went and he said, uh, Billy, did you put my kit in the car? And he said, no, I didn't put your kit in the car. So we did an offshore. He sailed in a t-shirt, a bin liner, jeans and Dubarry boots overnight in Scotland. Oh, uh, I mean, you know, you, you, you sort of say, well, that's, that's pretty hardcore. Boy. He got in Proper and then he went and had a shower. We arrived at 11 in the morning. He went straight to the Tarbot Arms and drunk till three in the morning. Jesus. He's almost as good offshore as me then, Fry. Oh, different level to you, Fred. <laughs> I've thrown up on the very best sailors on planet Earth, I reckon. I don't think Shag's ever forgiven you. I had this one stretch. I was very, I feel very lucky that I did the last Admiral's Cup as we know it. Was it in that in 04? Three. Oh, 03, there you go. I knew you'd correct me. And I'm crap offshore. Like, as soon as I can't see land, I throw up on someone. So I knew I was going to be sick, but I tried really hard. And 
downwind, I told a few jokes upwind, I vomited a lot. Um, and we'll get, I was like, right, I know I'm going to be sick because we're beating to Wolf Rock in a 40-footer and there's a, there's a, it's been blowing 30 knots from the west in a few days. So I put a couple of Sainsbury's bags down my boots. So at least when I was throwing up on the rail, I'd throw up in a Sainsbury's bag. Now, we had a pretty bloody good afterguard at that event. We had uh, Ian Moore, Soapy, calling Nav. We had uh, Ainsley driving, who had just, in fact, another funny story. Ainsley had just, he was trying to move up into the fin from the laser. Had just spent three years trying to put on 10 kilos to go from fin weight <laughs> to laser weight. We, we show up for the weigh-in and stir-fried, calculated the maths wrong. And he was like, Ben, uh, you wouldn't mind losing eight kilos, would you? And he's like, fuck off, Fry. I've just spent three years trying to put this on. <laughs> Oh, well done, Fry. Anyway, and who else did we? We had Walkabout there, didn't we? Yeah, but uh, Del Boy did the uh, Wolf Rock for us. That's right. So we had a pretty good afterguard back there, and I was hiking one forwards, slowly getting more sick, more sick, and then I was like, I'll tell you what, if I throw up in my little plastic bag here, I can just keep it really subtle. So I had a real good vomit in my plastic bag, and I was like, oh, that's pretty good. No one noticed that. Anyway, the next wave comes over. It takes the plastic bag out of my hand, puts it about five foot in the air like a, and drops it all over the back of the boat. Like, if I'd thrown up in the sea, it'd have just maybe got a few splashes on a few people. But what I managed to do was vomit in the plastic bag, then drop it, then it exploded all over everyone at the back of the boat. Mainly shag. Nice. Justice. The- now, going back on script stretch, I apologise. Um, we've, we've deviated slightly. Fred, I see that your cut boat has developed a spine. Um, is that for grip or longitudinal stiffness after your wobble? When I say wobble, I mean when you sort of dropped off the foils. Yeah, we, yeah we've had a couple of, couple of bow downs. I think everyone's had a couple of bow downs. Um, do you know what, mate? It's just, it's just testing out a few different bits and bobs um, and just sort of Helping with takeoffs, with touchdowns, um, and more than anything, it was a it was a good exercise for us to try something new and have the ability to react to wanting to try something new. Now, when you do all this spying and when you look around the other teams, it's all well and good going, "Oh, cool, that looks good. It'd be really good to try that." Well, let's kind of hang around and we. we may or may not do it in the future. But to have the designers go, right, okay, let's have a go, have the shore crew build it and fit it in the length of time that we did, what is actually it's a, it's a really good exercise in having the ability to react because we know in the last three or four months we might have to pull the trigger and see something different and, and, and react quickly to, to, to match what we think other teams might be doing. That didn't answer your question at no, all. So is, it, is it for grip <laughs> or stiffness? <laughs> Mate, I'm about two or three bottles of gin off talking about that. <laughs> so when you guys were um, over in Cagliari um, and you did a few lineups next to the Italians, what were your thoughts? So for, first of all, within the rules uh, stretch, we were not allowed to line up, so we didn't line up. Yeah. From what we've seen with... Uh, all three other teams, they're all, they're all in, in reasonable nick. Um, you know, smart guys, good sailors. I think it's safe to say all the, the different boats have different pockets of wind where they look really good. Um, but it's hard to put your finger on where everyone's at in their, in their stage of, of development, you know. Uh, there's obviously a massive amount going on in foil world. We're into this this double skin mainsail world and how you control that um, is quite a work up for everyone. And uh, I hope, I really hope that the boats, well, I hope the boats aren't equally matched. I hope we're faster than everyone for obvious reasons, but I really hope we don't arrive to the cup what, like we arrived to the cup in 13. Yeah. That's my worry. And then that's not my worry sitting here as an, as an Ineos sailor. That's my worry as a fan of the America's Cup. Um, I don't. I loved sailing with Luna Rossa in thirteen. I don't have fond memories of that cup. Not because of Luna Rossa, they were a great team to be involved with, but for obvious reasons, with Bart losing his life, I don't have massively fond memories of that cycle. And I think 
I think uh, I think it's brushed under the carpet a bit just how crap the Challenger Series was uh, before the, the America's Cup got really good. Now, I hope that we're not going into that in 2021. I really hope. And, and if we are going into that, I hope we're the fastest boat. Um, so, for, for, like I said, for obvious reasons. But that is my worry. We're in the... We've only got four. We've only got four teams again. We're going to have a challenger series with three teams again, and yeah, there, there's potential to be big speed differences because it's a new class and the variance in packages and the variance in answers to the questions could be wide. And I roll back to 2007, which was one of my, I think, my favourite cup because we were in the fifth generation of a class and it was a match racing event. And you could push off the dock. I sailed with Victory Challenge then. And a bar team New Zealand, who were half a notch ahead of everyone, and maybe China were half a notch below everyone, there, there were, you could win or lose for anyone in the day. That was a brilliant match racing event. Brilliant match racing event. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was an incredible spectacle as a visitor to, you know, to the America's Cup bases to see all the teams there. It, it, felt, it felt like a really big America's Cup exhibition, yeah. I suppose. Um, how are we going to get more people competing in this in the future? Yeah, it's a good question. There's my favourite thing that's happened. I thought the racing there was good, but it wasn't a TV product. I think what Oracle and Larry did brilliantly in 13, but definitely in 17, was they made it a TV product. Now, we're sitting on the race boats getting ready to do a pre-start, and you'd, you'd get the race officer coming over the radio going, oh, we've just got another one-minute delay for adverts. Like, that's where we got to. And I didn't really have a problem with that because I would come in from sailing in 2017 with Land Rover BAR, as we were then, and all of my lads that I went to Exeter University with who are sports nuts would have sat there and digested that sailing product, that two-hour show, and absolutely, they knew nothing about sailing. They're rugby, football, cricket lads, and they loved that product. And I think it's important, and, and Cell GP has taken that and run with it, and that's great, and I think what they're doing now is still great. And I really, really hope that... Team New Zealand and the, the guys who are organising the America's Cup keep that quality of sport for people who have started watching the Cup and expect it to be that. Expect it to be that. Regardless of, regardless of the class of boat, it still needs to be a sport for the wider sporting community and we had got there. So I hope we don't lose that. Yeah. Um, I've got a few questions for, um, for you. Um, <clears throat> I think our, our listeners need to get to know the Ineos sailing team. You guys are always hidden under a helmet. We need to get <laughs> to know them better. Yeah. Um, who's the most driven competitor on the sailing team? Oh, man. Do you know what? It's going to sound so cheesy, but it, do you know, it is Ainsley. He's such a lunatic, you know? I mean, he's a bit long in the tooth now, but... <laughs> He's, he's still fit as a butcher's dog. And a perfect example of what he's like is we do a bunch of safety training, right? As we do, we do it sort of once every two months, we'll do a bunch of safety training, which is really more than anything, learning not to panic underwater when you're at max heart rate and you need to get your shit together and sort yourself out and get out of this problem. So you do a bunch of breath holding exercises to build you up to these different levels. And I kid you not, that man is so competitive. He will come up from underwater. He will hold his breath for over four minutes and come up blue to make sure he wins. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Um, but beyond that, like right now, although we're in, in COVID-19 lockdown, we're using this block to do a huge volume block. We, ne- we never have the opportunity to get paid to get really 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 fit because we're always sailing and working on the boat so now we are now we're sailing and 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 now we're not sailing working on the boat so every sunday night there's a leaderboard of the amount of hours that the boys are putting into their cardio training and the the uh heart rate zones that they're in and that is getting stupid like people are 
knocking past 20 hours onto 25 hours of training a week. And we have a, we have a dialogue now with Ineos, within Ineos Sport, um, that we are, we work, we have conversations with, uh, team Ineos, the cycling team. We share a lot of information with them around sports science. Um, a football team's involved. Obviously, the sub two-hour marathon lot. We're really lucky to talk to them, and and we're knocking on the door of the amount of hours that um, the cycling team are doing at the moment. So it's certainly changed. So I've got some more questions. We've got two minutes and forty-one because um, left because stir fry is too tight to invest in the more expensive Zoom. Give me your credit card. Um, most fun to sell with on, on Ineos Team UK. Uh, I do you know what I've sailed with Nick I've sailed with Nick Hutton for coming on 15 20 years in extreme 40s and across Luna Rossa into BAR and now into Ineos and he makes me laugh he's a proper West Country lad he's as mad as a box of frogs none of the Australians understand a word he says because he talks so fast in a West Country accent so yeah um, I do like I do like sailing with Nick unless I have an emergency stash of jelly babies because he gets so grumpy when he's hungry so I have jelly babies in my uh, wetsuit just for Nick. Obviously, I don't eat them myself. And if he gets a little bit low on sugar, I'll, I'll give him a handful of jelly babies and it will cheer him up. He's like a Labrador chasing a tennis ball most of the day and then he'll run out of energy and I have to give him, give him sweets to keep him going. So I do enjoy sailing with Nick, but he is as mad as a box of frogs. 30 seconds more. Which of the Australians talks too much? Do you know they're all quite, you know, you know Bazzers, and we've all sailed with Bazzers, and our, our Bazzers are, are very Bazza-like, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say any of them talk too much. Joey Newton's got some great stories, you know. He's been doing the cut forever, won it twice, I think, with, with Oracle. Um, and, yeah, he's got some fantastic stories. Um, which of the teams least likely to get an invite to be a member of Mensa? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you bastard. Me. <laughs> me. No, I'm going to say me, otherwise I'll get duffed up by someone. Okay. And then, then this one's from Stir Fry. Who's the longest in the shower? Oh, me for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's an absolute lie. Yeah, no, that's an absolute lie. Scratch, who does your script? <laughs> I'm I'm just a bottle of rum in now. I've given up trying to actually make any effort. 